Well, it might be uh, irony, divine providence, sovereignty of God. Pick your uh, purpose behind it, but uh, here we are on uh, Mother's Day. Also, uh, in our series on the Ten Commands, the, the weekend that we land on the Ninth Command. I call that a good providence from God because the Ninth Command is about communication and our words and whether our words are harmful or encouraging or helpful. And of course, this is uh, something that mothers deal with all the time. I had a mom or I, I, I heard about a mom in our church who recently shared a story about something that happened to her. Uh, her daughter, elementary age daughter was uh, at school and they had a project that day where they were to make a card for their mom. Okay, so it's a nice thing to do, isn't it? Encourage the moms. Always a good idea to encourage the moms. In fact, remember to call your mom today. Um, so she makes this card and uh, she brings it home to her mom. And her mom gets the card and on the card it says, you are the best mom ever. Isn't that nice? So nice. Five minutes later, she asked her, can I have my friend come over for dinner? Her mom said, no. She took the card, ripped it up, threw it away. (laughs) Nice. Yes. This is why we need Mother's Days, right? It's because of all those moments like that. And it's also why... We need the ninth command because how easy it is for us to take words, use words to manipulate, to hurt, to harm, and not to, and not to help. And so uh, we're in the series in the Ten Commands. We are on the ninth command. And what we've seen over these weeks is we've seen there's an internal logic. There's an internal structure to the Ten Commands where you have the first command, for example, you shall have no other gods before me. And we saw that if you get that one right, you don't need the other nine. But it's because we don't get that one right that we have the other nine. And as you go through the Ten Commands, we see that the first four are all about my vertical relationship with God, my vertical worship. Five through ten are about the horizontal, these relationships, how I am relating to other people. We saw, for example, that uh, the sixth command is about... Uh, uh, that human life is sacred. Uh, the seventh command is that purity and sex is sacred. The eighth command, that uh, personal property and honoring what others have is sacred. And the ninth command now is that truth and truth speaking is also sacred. So here's the ninth command. It's short, as many of these are. Here's what it says. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Almost doesn't matter what translation you have. They all basically translate it the same. Yours might have a thee, thou, or something like that. But uh, that's pretty much it. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So the ninth command is really trafficking in the category of our words. Okay? Our words, our communication, and the heart motives behind what we say, why we say what we say. And that includes verbal and nonverbal. A lot of what we communicate is nonverbal. 
See? I was acting disappointed. Uh, so, let's begin by talking about what is bearing false witness. What does that actually mean? And we have to remember the context that God gives the Ten Commands to Israel there at Mount Sinai. They have just come out of Egypt. They're essentially nomads. I mean, they, they're, they're living in a desert. They are living in tents. They are going to have a, a 40 years of basically picking up tents, moving here, moving there. In other words, it's not like our society here today where we have, um, you know, we have laws, we have courts, there are marshals and police, and there are appellate courts and a Supreme Court. They didn't have any of that. And so God establishes a legal code in uh, here, beginning here in the Ten Commandments, but also uh, throughout the, the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where basically it is a mutual accountability between one another, where if something was done that required a capital punishment, it required witnesses. Okay? In a sense, you could say big and small, it all required witnesses. But especially the big, the big violations and the big crimes, these required witnesses. And obviously, for justice to be done, witnesses have to tell the truth, right? Well, God, is, God knowing the human heart, established a rule. It wasn't just one witness that could condemn somebody to death. Because we all recognize any one person can say something and they imagine it to be true or they have an agenda and so they say things against people this happens of course all the time god established the rule that it took two or three here's deuteronomy 17 6 on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses the one who is to die shall be put to death a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness one witness can be corrupt one witness can be betraying one witness can be lying But two or three, that's a harder collusion of lying to create. God takes the further step and he says, and and this is in Deuteronomy 17, he says that not only does it take two or three witnesses, but when that person who's been found guilty because of the testimony of these two or three, when, when it comes time to throw the stones and to stone them to death, the person who made the accusation has to be the first one to throw. Now, why would God do that, do you think? Because it's one thing to lie. It's another thing to murder. And essentially, a false witness whose witness leads to the death of somebody else would also be guilty of the sixth command, would be guilty of murder. Paul picks up that same principle. We find it in the New Testament as it relates to establishing just cause against leadership. So it's a, it's a, it's a biblical principle, two or three witnesses. Now, Moses repeats this command in Deuteronomy 5, and he uses a slightly different word. He says, you shall not bear insincere witness against one another. Different Hebrew word than here in, in Exodus. Different meaning as well. And we find then that not only does God care about the content of what we say, but insincerity speaks to what? The heart behind the content of what I am saying. In other words, it is the words that I say and why I am saying what I am saying that is now the measure of whether or not morally I am doing what is right or wrong. 
And we know this to be the case because we can say things that we think are true. We, we believe they're true, but we're just mistaken, right? Is that a moral violation of this command? If you go to the grocery store and you buy a watermelon and sit next to the watermelon, there's a sign that says $5. And you go to the checkout and the checkout lady says that'll be $8. And you go, no, it's $5. I saw the sign. And she, well, let's check on this. And she sends the bag boy to go. Um, are there bag boys anymore? I think there's some places to still do that. <laughs> Tells you where I shop. Um, we don't have luxuries like that. But uh, goes and he comes back and he says, um, you know, the, the $5 sign from the cantaloupe fell down by the watermelon. It's actually $8. Now, do they throw you in the slammer and accuse you of uh, treachery? No. Why? Because you honestly, it was, it's understandable, right? What you said was not a lie. It was simply, it was simply um, not true even though you were sincere in believing it was true. If always saying the truth is a moral requirement, there are no weathermen going to heaven, right? <laughs> but are they insincere in what they're saying? Some of them, yes, I do believe, after these years, are, are deceiving us wickedly every single night. But most of them are doing their best. They're looking at the winds. They're looking at the jet streams and the clouds. And they're saying, we think it's going to snow or not, rain or not. Okay. So do you see then how this is a little more complex? Um, and it's going about to get way more complex. We'll get into some more complexities here. But what am I, am I saying what is consistent with reality as best I know it? Am I faithfully representing the facts? Am I honest about what I am saying? Do I communicate verbally and non-verbally with integrity and truthfulness? A false witness is somebody who is insincerely not bearing, not sharing reality as they know it to be and is doing that for some immoral reason, personal gain, profit, whatever. One theologian defines the lie this way. I would say that a lie is a word or act intentionally that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him. The motive behind what I am saying in some way is damaging to that other person. That is a lie. Jennifer and I visited a museum and there was one particular sculpture that I, I saw and I thought, oh, I'll be able to use that as a sermon illustration someday. And so I took a picture of it. And guess what? Today's the day. Okay? Today's the day. So I think this actually summarizes what a lie is fairly well. Isn't that good? Okay? To be two-faced, to present one thing as being true, but in reality something else is true. I thought that was a good visual. Some of you are visual learners. There's a good visual of what... This is talking about. So intentional deception includes exaggerations, half-truths, insinuation. I heard a great insinuation of the, of the first mate who was disciplined by the captain of the ship. And uh, he was just so mad about it. The captain would discipline him. Well, a few days later, the captain said, okay, you can have the, you can have the helm again. And so he took the helm of the ship and he opened the, the ship's log and, he's, and he wrote in there, Captain Sober Today insinuation, right? Treachery, betrayal, cover-ups, slander, gossip, fabrications, covenant and promise, 
breaking, and really misleadings of all kinds and all levels. And the Bible is filled with lying. Lies all throughout this. In fact, the Bible calls Satan the father of lies, and so we see his treachery at work, and so we go to just the Garden of Eden, right? And what does he do? He lies about the truth to Eve in the temptation. And then right away, Cain lies to God about his role in the murder of Abel. And we have like some of the heroes of the story, Jacob lying to Isaac in order to get uh, the birthright from his brother Esau and on and on. So many examples, Peter lying to the, the little girl who said, aren't you one of his disciples? And no, I don't know the man, right? Deceiving, hiding, covering, lying. You know, in the series, I've uh, leaned on a few of the historic confessions and catechisms because they say it so well. I'm going to do it again here for the ninth command. Here's the Westminster Larger Catechism on the question of the ninth command. What are the duties required in the ninth command? This is well said, but long. So hang with me. I'm telling you the truth. The duties required in the ninth command are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. And the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth, in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our, na- <clears throat> of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocence, a ready receiving of a good report, an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, slanderers, love and care of our own good name, and defending it when need requires, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. And that last part from Philippians 4. So here's the good news, everybody. If you want to fulfill the ninth command, just do that all the time. Yeah, you get what I'm saying there because you look at that and you're like, right? That's not so easy to do. Not at all. When deceiving and lying and covering up and hiding is so much a part of our culture and our society it is you know implicitly taught by example from leadership in our in our society and just so many things that seem to insinuate that lying and cheating is okay if it's expedient if it helps me in some way to get ahead sure i'll fabricate my resume just a little bit so i look better than i actually am I'll tell the story in a way that makes me look better than I actually, and I'll puff myself up. I'll also tell stories about people I don't like that make them worse than they actually are, and on and on it goes. It's in the media, it's in front of us all the time. So, just do that, be warmed and filled, go home. That's sort of discouraging, isn't it? In fact, to think about lying, it actually has a lot of ethical dilemmas to it. And uh, 
I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but while we're here, we need to talk a little bit about whether uh, there are kinds of lies that are okay. Did you know there are some lies that are okay? Now you're like, man, this is really a weird sermon. (laughs) To help us with this, I'm going to use um, a little little, uh, matrix from Martin Luther on lying. He said there are three kinds of lies, two of which are okay, one of which is immoral. Okay, There are humorous lies, there are helpful lies, and there are harmful lies. Okay, so let's just talk about what, what would be a humorous lie. Well, this includes the kind of joking and jesting, sort of that jocularity that where we are sort of teasing and, and, and telling stories that are absurd or whatever. And we clearly know that we are not saying this is to be the fact. So if I say, did you hear about the squirrel in the rowboat? Somebody here might think of the ninth command and go, oh, really? Was there actually a squirrel in a rowboat, right? You're a liar. I'm not lying. I'm just telling a joke, okay? Chill out, right? This is part of the fun that we enjoy as human beings to uh, to just be humorous, to be amusing. You can think about actors and actresses as another example of this. Where they are portraying something, they're acting like there's somebody that they're, they're not. And yet, nobody minds that. Nobody says, that's immoral. You shouldn't be doing that. And, uh, you know, I think about a commercial for some years ago. Some of you might remember this. That highlighted to me this duplicity, which seems to be okay. I would say is actually okay. Remember the guy who, uh, I think he was selling Advil or something. He, he says, uh, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Oh, well, then I really want to take seriously your medical advice because you pretend to be somebody who actually knows something about medicine. So think about uh, games and sports that involve a certain trickery or a deception, right? Is that, you know, is it, is it wrong? Was it wrong for Walter Payton to act like he was going this way and to go that way? No. It was not wrong for him to do that. We wish he was still around doing that. Think about board games that you play that involve deception, right? Where you are trying to trick your opponent into doing something. Is that, is that wrong? No, it's fun. It's so fun. Yes. So lots of activities where, and basically it's, it's where everybody understands that you are not trying to represent reality. You're not saying this is the way that it is, even though it sounds like you're saying it. We all know that you're not. It's just humor. It's amusement. So those kinds of lies are fun. How about helpful lies? Now, here's where this gets a little ethically tricky. Um, Here's an easy one. If your spouse is turning, whatever, 40, and you uh, say, hey, I'm going to be taking you uh, to uh, Longhorn to celebrate your birthday. And, you know, your husband's like, yeah, steak, right? And so on your way, all of a sudden you turn into, you know, some restaurant that's got a back room. And he goes, what are you doing? Just walk in the door. And it's a surprise, right? All these people. And he's like, oh, you, 
you. Okay? Is that immoral lying? No. Why? Because it's not intended to harm, right? It's actually intended to be a blessing to this other person. So we have to check the motive behind it. But here's where it gets actually difficult is when you have conflicting moral requirements. For example, was it wrong for Rahab in Joshua when the spies, the Israeli spies came and she hides them in the thatch of her roof and the soldiers from Jericho come and say, we know those spies came to your house. And she said, yeah, they were here, but they went that way, right? Now she knew they were in the roof, but she said, they went that way. And then you get to Hebrews 11, and she's listed in the hall of faith. And is that morally acceptable? There's people debate this. Or we go to World War II. So many moral things in World War II that uh, also are in, in conflict. Like, was it wrong for the Dutch Christians to hide Corey Tinboom in her hiding place? And when the SS or the Gestapo came... And said, are there any Jews hiding here? And they said, no. Was that immoral? Were they okay doing that? Or you think about Schindler's list and the deception that he employed in order to save hundreds of Jewish lives. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian and pastor who morally was conflicted with whether he should be a part of a plot to kill Hitler, um, the Valkyrie plot, he was part of that, um, if you saw that movie, he was part of that whole conspiracy, and it ended up costing him his life. He was hung just months before the Allies um, showed up. So what do we do with these kinds of moments where we, to, in order to protect a life, for example, we would feel the need to be uh, deceptive. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because some of this, I frankly, I don't know that I have good resolution in my own mind on. But there are biblical examples of God being deceptive. Like the ambush at Ai as an example of this, where he says, hey, you guys get the soldiers out there and then run away and act like you're fleeing. And once the men of I are out, then we'll send in a flanking unit to come in and to wipe out the city. So we're going to deceive the men of I. God laid out that strategy. Or how about when Samuel was told to anoint David? And uh, Samuel says, but if Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And God says, tell him that you're going there to make a sacrifice. Which might have been a cover story. But his real purpose for going was to anoint David. Or what about Jesus on the road to Emmaus after he talks with the disciples and they don't realize who he is and it says that he acted like he was going further on. And they said, no, no, come eat with us. And was he being deceptive, immorally? Of course, we would say no to that because we know that Jesus never sinned. But we see then that this whole truth and lying creates for us challenges. I go back to the text and it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And part of how I resolve this is neighbor assumes a certain relationship, a certain um, responsibility that in a time of war or a severe adversarial relationship, 
to me, would not necessarily rise to that same level. So I do not condemn the Dutch Christians for hiding Corey Tinboom. I think they go down as heroes in the story uh, as an example of that. Or how about an example like John MacArthur happened to him, Pastor John MacArthur. One day he was uh, just in his office and some guy heard some sermon or got, was mad at him for whatever reason, slips past the doors and slips past the staff secretaries and walks right into his office wielding a knife and says, he says, where's John MacArthur right now? Like in a very threatening way. John MacArthur's at his desk and he's sees the man and he says, let me go see if I can find him for you. (laughs) And he walks out of the office, calls security, and they haul the guy away. Should he have said, it's me, I'm John MacArthur, do it quick. (laughs) I don't think so. And if you come in wielding a knife uh, into my office, you know, my name is Bob Smith. Because in that moment, I don't have a lot of moral conflict, I think. You are trying to murder. So I just think that we look at these things, and there are moral complexities here. And when we, especially when we look back in history and see how brothers and sisters have struggled with this, we ought to give them grace. But here's the reality. Most of us will never be in a situation like that. We're never going to be in a situation that... I have to lie in order to do something of that nobility, save a life, save a race of people. The vast majority, 99.9999% of our struggles and challenges with the ninth command are right back down to this third category of harmful. They're not humorous. They're not helpful. They are harmful. And this is what the ninth command is about. The intentionally deceiving of somebody else, no matter what it is, in order for in some way to diminish them, to hurt him, not to help him. Now let's ask the question, why does God care? I mean, seriously. You're almighty God, and you care about words. I mean, what are words? They're just sound waves, right? They're just, why do you care what we say? And yet the Bible clearly says that God does care. Jesus himself said that every careless word we utter will be judged on the judgment day. I mean, just that right there ought to make a lot of us shut up with a lot of the junk that we spew forth. But God does care about truth, and God cares about truth speaking. Why? And here, again, the ninth command, like all of the other commands, are not primarily about our moral responsibility. They are primarily about God. They tell us what God is like. So the sixth command, God is pure and holy. So adultery, or a sixth command is God is infinitely glorious therefore image bearers and taking a life is always going to be wrong and the seventh command he's pure and holy therefore sexual immorality is always wrong and uh god is a god who gives and gives and gives therefore to be a taker to be a stealer eighth command is always wrong and the ninth command has to do with truth and the fact that god is himself what i'm calling true 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 
We sing about God being holy, 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 right? And that repetition reinforcing the moral purity of who God is. But he is also truth and is true in all that he says and all that he does is consistent with reality and he is the ultimate reality. Or to use Bible passages that speak to this, Titus 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Hebrews 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement and to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why, as the text said, why is it impossible for God to lie? I mean, why can he just flat not do it? And the reason is that he neither can nor needs to. Mark Twain said it this way, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. It is when we lie and deceive that we have to remember the lie and the deception. But if you always tell the truth, there's no reason to be afraid of anything, to need to remember anything. Lying is for hiding. Lying is for manipulating. Lying is to make yourself look better than you actually are. Lying is to diminish somebody else lower than they actually are. Are lying is to deceive and make yourself look more glorious than you actually are. And these are all reasons that God doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to hide. Who's he hiding from? Who's he afraid of? What does he have about himself that he's hoping nobody finds out about that? I'm going to shade it. I'm going to cover it up. God doesn't have anything like that. Why? Because he is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, as John writes. Men love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We love the darkness. We live in our character in the darkness. We hope nobody discovers what we're like. We hope nobody realizes the deception of our words. But God doesn't have any fear. There is no need for shadows with God. He is light and he dwells in light and everything that he says is light it is consistent with the moral purity and the reality that is god not only can he lie he doesn't have to lie he doesn't have to puff himself up and tell stories that make him look better than he is he is all glorious okay all glorious there's no need to nuance anything no reason to hide God delights in the truth because he is the truth. And lying and deceiving are all contradictions to the character of God. It's one of my favorite guys, John Murray, writes, When we speak, therefore, of the sanctity of truth, we must recognize that what underlies this concept is the sanctity of the being of God. As the living and true God. He is the God of truth. And all truth derives its sanctity from him. This is why all untruth 
why all untruth of falsehood is wrong. It is a contradiction of what God is. Essentially, lying is what sinners do in order to be God. Now, why do I say that? Here's why. Because if I can't trust God to meet my needs, well, then I'll cheat in order to get ahead. And if I can't, if, if my identity is in, in Jesus is not enough, well, then I'll exaggerate my resume and the story, and I want everybody to know how great I am. And if I can't trust God for outcomes, then I'm going to cheat and manipulate and scheme and do whatever I got to do in order for my desired outcomes to happen. And instead of all of this, what we ought to realize that it is the truthfulness of God that means we don't have to lie. What has God said to us? He has promised to us. He is going to meet our needs. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If we just got that one promise and believed it to be absolutely true, I would not have to cheat on anything. Why? Because God's going to meet my needs. And he is true, true, true. Jesus said all God's word will be fulfilled right down to the jot and tittle, right down to the smallest little marks. God's word is true. It is a faithful speaking of God out of the reality of himself, which is totally true. Therefore, his word is absolutely trustworthy. It is, it is, it is perfect. It is completely reliable. I can depend on what God said. Because of who he is. He doesn't lie. He can't lie. And he doesn't need to. Everything he said is true. And that includes that he loves us. That includes that Jesus really is his son. And that includes... That whatever sinner repents of that sin and turns in faith to Jesus as Savior will really have their sins forgiven. How do we know that? How do we know we're not going to get to heaven and God's going to go, ah, 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 ah? Because He is true, true, true. We're the liars. He never lies. And we can rest on the reliability of all that God is and all that he has promised. And I have to believe right now in this room, that's a truth desperately needed. Because you're in a trial and you're anxious and you're worrying and you're wondering what's going to happen. And you know the Bible says that God is going to be there. He is going to provide peace for you in the midst of that storm. And yet you're wondering, how do I know if it's true? You know it's true because God is true. Or you're here and you've lost your job or there's something financially, whatever, and you're like, I I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to happen. How can I know as a child of God that God is going to meet my needs? Because he has promised to. And we rest then in the promises of God. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art. 
So the ninth command, yes, it's about not lying. But it's really about a life lived according to truth, lived resting in the promises of God, lived believing that because God has said it, I don't need to lie. I don't need to exaggerate. I don't need to deceive. Why? Because God is true. So, again, I could say there's the ninth command, be warmed and filled, go have a nice time and don't lie. And you know what, it's, to this point in the sermon, it's maybe helpful but it, in a way, but it's, it's not ultimately helpful. Because the natural person, you can hear the ninth command all day long, and you know what, I'm still going to lie and cheat. Why? Well, it's because the problem is not primarily my tongue. Now, this point is brought home to me from my childhood. Some of you maybe can relate to this. My parents, including my mom, on Mother's Day, I'm noting that, including my mom, came up with a very devious way to teach their children the need to tell the truth. So in in the DeWitt house growing up, if any of us lied, my parents would say, oh, that tongue is dirty. We need, to, we need to wash that tongue. So in we would go to the bathroom, and out comes the bar of soap, right? And some of you maybe know where this is going because you grew up with parents that hated you as well. <laughs> out would come the soap, right? And so they would say, we've got to clean that tongue. And so they would take the bar of soap and rub it, on, you know, a little water and rub it on the tongue. To this day, I remember that taste. It is one of the nastiest tastes. How many of you grew up in a house with a uh, mouth being washed out with soap? Okay. All right. These are the most truthful people in our congregation. <laughs> to this day, they're afraid of mom showing up with a bar of soap. It's a very effective deterrent. Now, children who are here, and you're thinking to yourself, my parents haven't done it to this point, but now they're going to start. Don't hate me, okay? If you're feeling hate, I'd like for you to look at the sixth command, which dealt with that. Good deterrent, but not a solution to the problem. Why? Because the problem is not my tongue. The problem is my heart. In a sense, for my parents to really do this, they would have to not just do the tongue, but then like jam this down my throat and get down to my heart and do some scrubbing on my heart. And even this wouldn't do that, of course. It needs some spiritual soap. The Bible says that there is a connection between my tongue and my, and my heart so that whatever is in my heart comes out of my tongue. Jesus said this himself. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And he says elsewhere, the the heart is where malice comes from and murder and lying. It is the human heart that has to be cleansed. And that's why all of our jails and all of our courts and all of our punishments and and all of our laws uh, about, you know, lying and cover-up and all the rest cannot solve the problem. The human heart will always find another way around it, another way to deceive, another way to lie. But the Bible and the gospel of Jesus 
can, and will. Remember, it's about truth. The natural person in my heart, I have deception and lies, right? And if my tongue is connected to my heart, out of my tongue is going to come deceptions and lies. Somehow I need to have in my heart truth. How do I get truth in my heart so truth can be on my tongue? And this is where the power of the saving work of God by his Son, through his Holy Spirit, does exactly that. Listen to Titus 3.5 describing what happens when somebody receives Jesus as their Savior, when salvation is realized in their life. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't merit favor with God. We can obey the ninth command all our life, and we're still, we're still not saved. It is according to his own mercy. And the people of God said, it is the mercy of God. How does this happen? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Did you know God has a soap? God has a soap. And that soap is the Holy Spirit doing the miracle of regeneration in our hearts. He gets in there and he changes us. Okay, He changes us. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires. Essentially, he puts the truth in our hearts. And the fruit of that then is that the truth can come out of my mouth because I have the truth in my soul. And who is the truth? How does it get there? John 14, 6, Jesus famously said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What is Jesus saying there when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life? There is a way for the human heart to be cleansed. There is a way for my guilt before my creator God to be forgiven. There is a way for me to gain access to the Father. And that way is Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. He is the holy son of God. He never lied. He never deceived. He never violated the ninth command. He is himself the truth. He is the sum of all truth. He is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is the truth. And he is the life. There is life in his name. There is eternal life for those who believe in him. So how do we get this truth in our heart? That cleanses us and changes our hearts so our tongues can speak the truth as well. And this is going to sound impossibly simple, but I'm just telling you, this is what God has said in his word. Here's how it happens. We believe. We don't go out and put signs around our house, somehow reminding us, don't lie, ninth command. Or any other command. And think now, I must have favor with God, I must be right with God. The Bible is clear that we cannot do that. Our sins keep us from God. We were born in sin. But for those who believe, receive this gift from God, the Bible is also abundantly clear that God, because he's promised and he doesn't lie, God will come to us. God will wash us clean. God will transform us. 
into people who have the desire to actually please the Lord in obedience. And all of this comes through Jesus, his work on the cross, dying for our sins, comes to us by the Holy Spirit, and it is for our good and his glory. Jesus scrubs my heart with gospel truth. Truths like, again, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Truths like, I am the life. Truths like, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The truth that he is the Son of God and Savior of the world. The truth that he is my faithful prophet, priest, and king. And when those truths are in me, now the truth can flow from me. And my life does not need to be lived in the shadows. How many of you today are tired of the shadows, always watching your back, always wondering if somebody's going to discover the fraud that you have been, always worried about maybe somebody realizing who you really are? The Bible says that you are a sinner, and when I acknowledge that before the one true God, now I live in freedom. Jesus said that the truth will set you free. Free to what? Free from hiding, stepping into the light of God's truth, resting in the fact that I am who I am, and yet God loves me. I am who I am, identified with Jesus, that I have all of these promises that are true for me. And now to look to my neighbor and not see him as an enemy combatant, but to see him as somebody that I am also called to love. And to speak the truth to him. Indeed, in Christian community, Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Sinners can't do that. But sinners who have been cleansed can. And so many wonderful implications for living in community with one another. And what it means to be a people of truth who speak the truth in love to one another. And the freedom of what that means. But that's all next week. Hope you'll come back for that. But that's the ninth command. God is true, true, true. And all deceptions contradict the essence and the glory of who God is. And the ninth command calls us to live in the light of that freedom of truth. And to come out of the shadows of deception and exaggeration and slander and a host of others. So I hope God blesses this word to us today. Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer?